What's heaven gonna be like? I don't know yet. We've never been there. What do you think it'll be like? The streets are made out of gold. And it's really bright. Angels. Giraffes. Giraffes are in the boat. Oh, they're in a boat. Okay. What color boat is it? Baby red. Bears. There's dogs in heaven, but there's probably not cats. There's lots of buildings. Really tall ones? Yeah. Like really, really tall? Yeah. There's gold everywhere. I think it has sand in a beach. Do you think there are sharks in heaven? No. Starfish? No, I hate starfish. <laughs> the trees should be green. Or the trees could be gold. There's no death, pain, sickness, or any of that bad stuff. Probably with ballerinas and statues of angels. What about the Statue of Liberty? Would it be there? Mm, yes. What else do you see? Basketball hoop. Basketball hoop? <laughs> That's a good morning in Ukrainian. Um, and uh, good to see you. I don't know what your visions of uh, heaven are, but uh, some great pictures from kids this morning. I'm so excited to get into this teaching on what heaven will be like. Uh, we're going to see how close we are to it and to dream with you in these moments. Uh, but as we get things going this morning, I want to talk about how great it is to have fall season. A raise of hands if it's your favorite season, fall being your favorite Absolutely. Yesterday we could uh, put on your favorite comfy hoodie, uh, maybe watch some football. Um, but perhaps the, the biggest sign of fall uh, are the autumn leaves changing colors. I, I was wondering, uh, have you heard of a comedian, Jim Gaffigan? He's got a great bit on the love of fall and the foliage. Uh, he says that most people about fall just love the foliage. I just love to watch leaves as they die. And he says, imagine the leaves' perspective if, if they were actually talking. What would they say during fall? Ah! I need chlorophyll. Why is everyone smiling at me as I die? Fall is the leaves hospice, uh, he calls it. And uh, yet we uh, gather up all the dead leaves and light them on fire and think it's a really good time. Um, but welcome to fall. You know, there, there are signs for a lot of different seasons, not just fall. Uh, we live by tornadoes, and sometimes uh, there are certain signs you can look for when it comes to tornadoes. If there is a bunch of hail, a green sky, uh, you might be facing an imminent tornado. Uh, obviously, if you see a funnel cloud. There are signs for other things. Uh, I don't know if you've ever lived long enough to have this idea that it's going to be a bad day. Uh, do, do you ever have one of those days where you're like, yep, all the signs are allocated. It is not a good day. Uh, same with a good day. Sometimes the signs are just there. That happens with people. Uh, you can tell when someone is in a really good mood or a bad mood and anywhere in between. We read the signs. Well, the reason I bring this up is because we're gathered in this place to consider some spiritual concepts. And as our title states, we're on the edge of heaven. We want to know, how close are we? 
And the reason I'm so excited, hold that question for a moment. The reason I'm so excited about this series is because of another scripture that God has used in my life to shape my perspective. This passage I'm going to share with you may sound pessimistic, but if you trust God to, to let it give you perspective, I think it can give you maybe the best perspective ever. Some of the words that have shaped the way that I walk are words found in the book of 1 John. Uh, the disciple named John wrote this. He said, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. These sound pessimistic, but they give perspective, don't they? If we're truly meant to live forever somewhere, whether that be heaven or a hell, should we not hear God's calling that when it comes to this world, you might have a good day, you might go to Disney World or eat a donut, but don't completely get engorged and enwrapped in that thing for there's something bigger than this world. And so as we turn to our lesson, uh, we're going to focus on, on the fact, uh, this first takeaway, uh, we're going to focus on the idea uh, that if you look too much at this world and not at the world to come, you will not live wisely. For better is to dream of what is to come. I don't know what your visions of heaven are. I don't know if your vision has starfish or sharks or not, but sometimes I think we spend too little time dreaming about what will be and too much time spending our, our thoughts and our emotions on what is. And so this is a sermon and a series that is dedicated to looking further and beyond, to the world that will be our eternal life, to the world so far beyond 70 or 80 years. And so back to the question, how close are we to the edge of heaven? What are the signs of the times? And the answer, it's our theme for today. We are so close. So let's turn to the Word of God. The Word of God that we're going to consider and explore, um, talk about the end times. If you want to know what the end is going to be like, you turn to Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and also to the book of Revelation. Some have said that the book of Revelation is just an elongated illustration of Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and I tend to agree with that theory. Uh, so I'm going to invite you to look along there with uh, Matthew chapter 24. And, and something that we do at Amazing Love and honor for the word of God is we just stand. So I'm going to invite you to please stand as we hear the word of God. Here it is. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Well, Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of war, wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of the birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. And that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. 
Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. I'm going to say a quick prayer. Lord, let the words that you speak to us sink deeply in our souls. Accomplish the purpose for which you send it. Amen. And before you sit down, could you turn to your neighbor and tell them, Jesus might return during this sermon. Jesus might return during this sermon. Please be seated. Because we're close. We're close. You know, it was just a week ago that I was preaching from a very different pulpit. Uh, some of you know that uh, we took a mission team to the Ukraine, and there I was in Mykolaiv, um, the southern part of Ukraine, um, at this church. It's a beautiful church built by the Swiss. Right now, there are many German people in it. Uh, in that church, they spoke Russian, Ukrainian, and German. So I got away with just a little bit of German that I remembered from high school, uh, tried to communicate with uh, those locals. Uh, it was an amazing experience to go to the Ukraine and to preach the gospel. Uh, many different things that we're excited to share with you about the opportunities to support and encourage ongoing. But a few things that I learned being in the Ukraine. Number one, I learned about their oppression. I learned about what Stalin did in 1932 and 33. It is at that time that the Ukrainians experienced what they call the Holodomor, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but Holodomor, it literally means the great starvation. What Stalin did at that time is he took away all the food supplies from the Ukrainian people uh, so that 3.9 million at least, some say 10 million, starved to death. Not only that, but I learned about war going on. We were driving to the village church that we were preaching at and, and, and doing evangelism nights, and we saw an army guy posted who said, you got to take a different route. And one of the reasons is they were exercising with their Gatling guns. Right now in Ukraine, uh, they are defending their border uh, from Russia who wants to take over and continue their oppression. I learned about what's happening religiously. Uh, right now in, in Ukraine, about 1% actually go to church. The Orthodox Church is the most prominent, and yet in the Orthodox Church, they deal with heresy, especially ritualism. Ritualism is the idea that you can do the rote things the right way that will lead to your salvation versus Jesus. There's this idea in the Ukraine when it comes to Christianity that you go to church twice and both by force. Once for your baptism, once for your funeral. There's also other heresy. There's the heresy of pietism in the Ukraine. Pietism is this idea that your salvation is secure based on your holiness rather than Jesus' holiness for you, which is shifting ground, uncertain ground, as no one can be completely holy. I heard of persecution for pastors of the faith. In 1939, uh, the Russians came in, shot Lutheran pastors, and drove the people out of their churches, which is hard for us to imagine, yeah? All because the Lutherans would not uh, give in to doctrine, would not do what the Soviets wanted to do and, and say what the Soviets wanted them to say. I also learned this persecution is still ongoing. The bishop, our contact, told me of pastors who were barbed wire together and thrown into rivers. 
He told me he cannot go to Russia because he doesn't think he would ever come back, that they would hold him there. Now, why do I tell you all this? Because just in the country of Ukraine, when we look at the word of God, if you would breeze through me once again, uh, verses 6 through 11, look at what all of it's saying. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Is that going on? Sure is. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes, the beginning of the birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted, be put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. People will turn away from the faith and there will be many false prophets. So when the disciples asked Jesus, you know, when will the end come and where is the end? The very clear answer is the end is now. We are in the midst of the end times and we are living at the edge of heaven. And that's our first takeaway. We are living on the edge of heaven. And, and I wouldn't even have to refer to the Ukraine, did I? If I just refer to what happened in America during the Great Depression, during the World Wars, during the heresies that we combat in this country, there would be enough to say, wow, the signs are everywhere. So I was thinking of maybe, you know, wearing a sandwich board, the end is near, but I thought you'd get the point through other illustrations. But now why does this matter, this teaching that we're living in the end? Well, I don't know how many of you um, have ever been to Lamaze classes. Uh, did anyone go to birthing classes? Birthing classes? A few, okay, very good. Uh, you, you might know uh, that uh, people get together for, for birthing classes, um, and, and they talk about what will happen during labor, um, so that uh, when the labor is actually going on, you know how to breathe, uh, you know to be in rhythm with your body, you know the posture, all of that. But let me ask you, how good are birthing classes if you're not giving birth? They don't really matter, right? <laughs> um, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so the reason I bring up that we're living in the end is because maybe then the encouragements and the warnings about the end will be appropriate. Maybe when we hear Jesus talk about the end times and what's actually going on, we won't be like, well, that's for another time. I don't really have to listen to that. But maybe we'll understand we're in the midst of this labor and hear the word and take to heart not only the warnings but the encouragements on a different level if it's actually going on. You know, there's another picture about the end times. I, I told you in this series we'll coordinate both Matthew and Revelation. And I don't know if any of you have ever heard or seen the picture of the four horsemen. Yes? This is an illustration in Revelation. Uh, talks about a horse in red. And it's interesting when I refer to the Soviets after just being there, uh, they like that color red. In fact, uh, interesting in Russian, uh, to, to say the word red basically is a euphemism or the same thing as calling someone beautiful. Um, they, they use the same word red as, as for beautiful. Interesting. But red, war, wars are going on. The black horse represents famine. Pestilence, all that could occur in a sinful world. The pale horse represents death in many different ways. The four horsemen that are going on right now, God says, beware, they're riding. So why again does this matter? 
Well, because of then the warnings and encouragements that God has for us this morning that I want to share with you. So you ready for that? First, I wanted to start with the warning, and then I'll get into the encouragements. Uh, to talk about the warning a little bit, um, I want to talk about one of my favorite fall activities, uh, which is to have this, which is a fire pit. Anyone enjoy being around a fire pit right now? Um, we recently bought one, and I learned a lot about um, handling a fire. Um, I learned that at the beginning, you need tinder, and um, I, I needed more than that, so I had an Aldi uh, grocery bag that I lit on fire. That did the job, by the way. If you, if you want advice, uh, that lights the tinder and everything else. Um, I learned about log placement. Uh, you can't just stack them all on each other. They need oxygen, so you have to kind of lay one on the side. I uh, learned about the need to, to stoke the fire. Uh, so if the flame is going out, if you turn it, if you poke it, if you, you know, roll it around, the fire will get going once again. Um, and then I also learned about how the fire ends. You have to tend it to the very end where there are just burning embers uh, watching it go out so that hopefully you don't set anything on fire. This is basics for fire pit maintenance. The reason I bring this up is because one of the things God warns us about is this fire pit activity going on in the lives of people. And when it comes to the end, he says, when it comes to the fire of faith, you need to know what it's going to be pictured by. And here is the fire of faith, that the love of most will grow cold. That in the end that we're living in, when it comes to most people, we will have burning embers of faith. We will not have this big conflagration. We will have people who are tempted to get further and further away from God, to be more and more apathetic until it could even go out. Can you relate to this word? And was Jesus right? It's interesting, I was talking to the bishop in Ukraine of the Ukrainian Lutheran Church, and we were talking about the threats that face Christianity. And one of the things that I wasn't expecting that he would bring up is the idea of apathy. Apathy, the idea that people had heard and known about the gospel, they just don't care. I have been a pastor in the States for now 11 years, and I would say the greatest threat for American Christianity is the same. It is not political things. It is not the oppression of other religions among us. The greatest threat that Christians have in America is their own individual apathy. And so God says, because you're living in the end, please watch out and beware that the fire of faith doesn't become burning embers that grow cooler and cooler and finally go out. So the question is, how do you stoke the fire? The question is, how, how do I get an Aldi bag that I can light on fire that will lead to, to bright flames and maybe get it going once again? For me, I believe that warfare is an appropriate illustration. The church on earth, while we're still here, is called the church militant. And you are in a spiritual war, a battle, every day that you live. The devil wants to lead you further and further away from the truth and more and more into the ways of the world and the love of this world. And what we need is to fight. What we need is a steely resolve that says, regardless of how my week went, I'm going to see Jesus. 
A steely resolve that says, regardless of what's happening in my day, I'm going to dwell deeply in the word. A steely resolve that says, regardless of all the other conversations I could have, the most important one is my prayer life with my God. This is the only way that I know to stoke the fire. Is steely resolve that says, nothing is getting in the way of me seeing Jesus. You know, Paul put it this way. The Apostle Paul said, it's like this competition. And everyone who competes in games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that won't last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Which leads me to my next point. Jesus' word of encouragement. The warning and now what we do. To set this up, I wanted to refer to our experience in the village town of Ivanica. Uh, we went to a, this village in the southern part of Ukraine to establish connections as they were learning English and also learning about Jesus. We had four different presentations during the week, uh, Bella and Ryan, Dan and myself. But we learned quickly that they didn't know much English. We saw it all over their faces as we were talking. Uh, for example, it'd be like if you were in Spanish 1 and a native Spanish speaker came in and was just talking and trying to have a conversation. That was like our experience there in the village. And so we improvised. And uh, part of the improvisation is how do we experience something together uh, without talking too much? So we danced. Uh, we learned uh, Cotton Eye Joe. Uh, thanks, Ryan. Um, we talked about the hokey pokey and did the chicken dance, all very fun things. But another thing that we did is we had a strength competition. Uh, here's a picture of them planking. Um, I had the reward of a handful of Jolly Ranchers uh, for whoever could hold out the longest. And I was impressed. Uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, judged how long you could plank or put the timer on. Uh, for me, one minute's pretty good. Uh, but these kids were going to two minutes and then to three minutes. And then I finally called it at the four-minute mark when there were still four left uh, because that was just a little too much. But if you've ever been planking, you know what it's like to have your body start shaking. You know what it's like to feel it in your stomach and, and, and everything kind of, you know, um, go. And, and the need to endure. Now, I'm going somewhere this morning. The next encouragement God has for us is similar to someone who's planking and wants to win the prize. Uh, God says to us, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. His encouragement to us is to stand firm, and that can also be translated to endure, to hold out. And this is what our God says, again, should happen with us. And so the next point or takeaway is this that we should endure without losing hope. And now I wonder, because I've talked about steely resolve, and now I'm talking about endurance, how might endurance be worked in us? Now, I don't have all the answers to that, but I have a guess. And so this isn't, again, uh, thus saith the Lord type issue, but I have a guess based on how God has worked in my life and the work, life of others um, based on how endurance might happen. To bring this up, I wanted to talk about one of the greatest men that I met over in the Ukraine, 
His name is Pastor Solman. Uh, he's actually Russian. He speaks native Russian. His wife is Russian. And if you don't like people, you will like Pastor Solman. This is a guy who uh, drives a, a van, and uh, while he's driving in the village, we'll just wave at the villagers. We'll ask, you know, for, for other people who need a ride to get into the van so that they can be helped. He's a man who uh, feeds children who need food because their parents can't provide. He's a type of man that if you're just around him, you can tell that he loves people, he loves life, and he is a good pastor. I like Pastor Solman. But it's interesting because some of the same temptations that Pastor Solman has to get discouraged and down are some of the same things he might do in your life and in mine. I had a heart-to-heart -heart with Pastor Solman, and even though I could tell that he is a wonderful pastor doing amazing things as he's pastor of three churches, he has three different congregations of, of 20 people each, he's doing wonderful things, he brought up a couple times, am I being effective? Now, I was astounded by that, because I look at this man of love, and I'm like, yes, how can you not see that you are being effective? But this is what I think it is to serve God and to get to the other side of endurance. May I permit to you that God, in his grace, might allow you to serve him and then question your effectiveness. He might allow you to try to pursue him and then not see any success. He might allow you to give it all out for the sake of the Lord and then have nothing you can see at the end of it. And this is why I think he does it. So that when you serve the Lord, you do it not for the success that you might feel and see, but you do it simply because you love him. And you do it simply because you're convinced it's worth it. And I know of no other way to get to extremely steely resolve and perseverance than serving him with all of your heart and it blowing up in your face and you waking up the next day and saying, but you are still God and you are still good and I am still here. So that's my guess. But I don't know how God might have worked this in your own life. I think it's similar for my own. But at this point, you might be saying, Pastor, wow, this is convicting, and I hope it is. Be because who of us can say, I have kept my fiery resolve at all times? Who of us can say that I have had that endurance on every level when suffering came and when disappointment came and disillusion came? I was just standing in, planking. Now we're cut to the core, aren't we? Can I just be honest? I'm a wuss. I am an absolute wuss every time the Lord tells me to endure for his sake. And it's childish. I mean, it's embarrassing. What about you? And so I repent. And I say, Lord, I, don't know, I know I don't have it all together. But you're worth it. And because of you, would you restore me and strengthen me again? And can I tell you about Jesus? Jesus knew what it was to endure. Jesus, who at the end of his mission would hang on a cross, and while others were scorning him and saying he saved others but he couldn't save himself, still hung there, planked it out, 
and died. Why? Because you were the mission. His love went that far. There are days we might experience apathy in the Christian faith, but you need to know there is never a day that his heart has stopped beating for you. Every time you come to repentance, every time you come to church, he says, welcome my child. Know my love and never be the same. He has mercies new every morning. He is a God who doesn't know how to fail you when it comes to love. How awesome is this Jesus? To not only warn us and encourage us, but to remind us of full and unfailing love so that we never want to run away. And we know that he's worth it. So a final word of encouragement. It's found in Matthew 24 that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to the nations and then the end will come. This gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for the salvation of mankind, it will spread and spread and spread just as it was shared through me and Bella and Ryan and Dan in the Ukraine. Just as it's shared online as we have a tech team who wonderfully videotapes and puts it to many people out there. Just as we reach out in the Frankfurt community, this gospel will spread and it will spread and it will spread. And it will give us a picture of those four horsemen. See, this white horseman in this interpretation has been, uh, there's two possible, but my interpretation is this is the gospel. This is the gospel's conquest. That the message of Jesus will go out. And hearts can have hope. And people can hear of free and full forgiveness that Jesus has won. It's the gospel that will be shared with Benjamin in baptism. The knowledge of full and free love, even though Ben right now can do nothing for the Lord. Jesus will do everything for him. Let us be about the sharing of this gospel. Because I don't know about you, I want to see Jesus. I don't love this world. My love is in a different place. I'm still a foreigner and a stranger here. What about you? So please join with me. Proclaim the gospel so that Jesus can return. He didn't return during this sermon, but he could today. May God so bless it and amen.